Hello, and welcome to the Sex Within Marriage podcast. My name is JD, and I blog over at uncoveringintimacy.com. And today we're going to be talking about hell. And I know that's a little bit of a different topic than usual, uh, but I've had some discussions lately with some people, and uh, my views of hell, uh, what I see in the Bible, uh, seem to be radically different than a lot of other people's. And they were curious about it, so I put together a Bible study and went through it with some people, and they were frankly all stunned and uh, surprised, uh, but also couldn't challenge what I said using the Bible. So some other people were interested. So I said, well, maybe I'll just do a podcast about it because I I think it's applicable in our daily lives and in our marriages. And I'll explain why in a bit. Before we get to that, though, I just want to quickly let you know that if you haven't heard yet, if you're not on our mailing list or following us on social media, um, we are currently doing a survey about premarital sex and how that affects married sex lives. If you haven't filled it out yet, uh, please do. We're trying to get about 2,000 people to fill it out so that we can do an analysis of the data and then we'll share our findings on the blog. And you can just go to the website, uncoveringintimacy.com. There's a banner at the top. You can just click it to go and fill out the the survey. Uh, It's all anonymous. It's sitting on our own private servers. No one else has access to the data and we don't ask for any personally identifying information. So it's perfectly safe. Uh, I'd love it if you'd fill it out and I'd really like it if we could get more women to fill it out because we tend to get uh, twice as many men as as women filling out our surveys and I'd love to even that out a bit. So share it with your spouse, share it with your friends, family, church, anybody you want. Now with that said, let's get back to the topic of hell and what does the Bible say about hell? And I think one of the most confusing subjects in Christianity is this topic of hell. I think it's so confusing because most base their beliefs on a handful of passages and then a heavy dose of pop culture. And the popular popular view is that hell is a place of eternal torment where vengeful God sends you for all of eternity for not obeying him. And people use this belief to try to scare others into being Christians. The, if you don't, you'll go to hell and be tortured for eternity type of evangelism. And unfortunately, this makes the basis of your salvation one of fear rather than love, and also turns God into a sadist rather than a loving father. Because what sort of loving father would create trillions of people knowing the vast majority would reject him and then keep them alive for eternity just to torture them? And this is a difficult question for Christians to answer, and they usually resort to an argument that amounts to, he's God and he can do what he wants. And if you read certain parts of the Bible uh, the way you must in order to justify this view, it also makes heaven a front row seat of the torture of hell, making all saints also sadists who will revel in the agony of, of the lost for eternity. And it's no wonder people look at Christianity and think, you must be insane to follow such a God. And you cannot support this view without leaving out large portions of the Bible. Instead, I think the Bible shows that even hell shows a loving and merciful God who gives us a choice between eternal life or eternal death. And then he grants us our selection like a loving father would. So let's see what the Bible says about hell. Do people get tortured for eternity? Is it just an infinite existence of everlasting torment? Is God really that sadistic? Now, I know this subject is going to upset some people, and I challenge you to listen until the end. Uh, Check the Bible verses for yourself. Uh, You can check out the show notes or the blog post on the website. Uh, It's going to list them all there. Um, 
this podcast will be mostly Bible verses with my thoughts interspersed so that you can know what I'm getting from those verses. Uh, but if you think you know what the Bible says about hell, I challenge you to listen to the whole thing anyways and see, you know, do your own study. Uh, I don't require you to agree with me, and I'm more than willing to be challenged on this so long as you do it in good faith. Uh, we had quite an interesting discussion about it in our supporters forum with some agreeing, some disagreeing. Uh, if you have any questions, please post them in the comments on the website so that others can participate. If you're feeling shy, you can email me as well. And now some will say, what does this have to do with marriage? And I think uh, your view of God will impact how you treat others. God's creation tells us a lot about who he is. For example, we know God is orderly because creation is very well ordered with strict rules and laws of physics, uh, constants, and like everything is perfect and orderly and structured. Uh, we know he cares about rules and laws because creation is ruled by laws, laws of physics, moral laws. Uh, but we also know that he cares about free will. So much so that he allows us to do horrible and terrible things, uh, even though they're horrible and terrible. I also believe that God calls us to love our spouse in the same way that he loves us. Uh, if you believe God forces us to love him or be punished, what does that translate into for a marriage? If you believe God keeps records of our wrongs and will torture us accordingly, then what does that mean for how we treat our spouses? Uh, this post is what I believe the Bible teaches us about how much God loves us regarding the end of our lives and what happens afterwards. And I think it shows God's character, and that's why I think it's important, because it shows us how to love. So we're going to start by answering the question, what is a soul? The soul is what most people believe goes to hell. So what is it? And we can go right to the beginning of the Bible and find out. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, And the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Uh, some translations will say instead that he became a living being, a person, a creature, but they're trying to translate this Hebrew word uh, nefesh, which means the entire living created being. When God create, created the animals, he called them nefesh. They were living beings. God called all the nefesh to Adam to be named. After the flood, God tells Noah that he can now eat the animals, but not to eat nefesh, that is, a living being. You have to kill it first. Don't eat things that are alive. And a nefesh is a living, breathing being. You cannot have a dead nefesh. That doesn't make any sense. So a soul, this word nefesh, is the body God created for us, plus the breath of God, whatever God puts in us to make us alive. But this breath is not a soul in how people think of it. They use the word neshama, meaning breath, not a soul, a spirit, or anything else. It has no consciousness, no thought, no autonomy. It's not alive. Uh, it's merely a function of something that lives. If something does not have breath, neshama, it is not a soul, nefesh. If that breath is removed, then you die. Nothing survives. You know, Job 34 verses 14 to 15 says, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, that neshama, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So this breath is what is keeping people alive, but it is not man's soul in and of itself. 
sometimes the word ruach is also used to describe this breath. Uh, this word means wind, which can symbolize both the breath and spirit. For example, in Genesis 1 verse 2, we have the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep, and the spirit, the ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. In Genesis 3 verse 8, we have, and then they heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden in the windy, the ruach, part of the day. And the human hid himself with his wife from the face of Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the garden. And in many cases, these are used interchangeably to denote that part of God, that spark of life that makes us alive. Without it, we do not survive. Uh, Genesis 6 verse 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit, my ruach, will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7 says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. God uses the same word when telling Noah which animals to bring, living ones with the spirit still in them. Don't king kill them and then bring them onto the ark, because that won't work for repopulation. But sometimes it's also used to refer to an emotional state or a mental stance. Uh, Genesis 26 verses 35, we have, And they were a grief of mind, a ruark, to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, and Genesis 41 verses 8 says, Now it came to pass in the morning when his spirit, his ruark, was troubled, and he set and called for the magicians of Egypt and its wise men, and Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Uh, Genesis 45 verse 27 says, And when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, when he saw their carts which Joseph had set to carry him, the spirit, the ruark, of Jacob their father revived. The point is, is that this word cannot be translated one way or another in all situations. We have to determine the best translation based on the context and keeping it in line with the rest of the Bible. Now that's just for the Old Testament, because that's Hebrew. When we come to the New Testament, we have new words in Greek. The primary one is psyche, which is that part of you that thinks and is the Greek version of the soul, the nefesh. When we look at these two verses, uh, they follow the translation reasonably well. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your nefesh, and with all your strength. Uh, in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Jesus is quoting the same verse, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your psyche, and with all your mind. And psyche is where we get this word psychology from. All life has a psyche, similar to all life has breath. Uh, Matthew 20, verses 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, his psyche, a ransom for many. Jesus did not give up some in effable soul. He gave up his mortal life. He breathed his last, and then he died. So a soul is a living being. It has a body, it has breath, and it has a mind. If you lose any one of those, you are no longer a soul. You are something that used to be a soul, but is now dead. But much of Christianity teaches that souls are immortal. So let's take a look at that. Are souls immortal according to the Bible? You know, if a soul is a body that is breathing and thinking, can a soul be immortal? No, it can't. The idea of a mortal soul runs completely contrary to the Bible. Uh, Ezekiel 18 verses 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. 
Psalm 37 verses 9 to 10 says, For evildoers shall be cut off yet for a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look for look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Uh, Psalm 37 verses 38, But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. Uh, Psalm 94, verse 23, he has brought back their wickedness upon them, and he will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. Psalm 92, verse 7, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and those who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. Psalm 145, verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 27 to 28. Uh, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. You know, we can keep going. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 18 to 19. Or many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walks as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with their mindset on earthly things. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which will plunge men into ruin and destruction. Uh, Romans 9, verse 22, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patient vessels the wrath prepared for destruction? You know, time and time again, we are told that those who are evil will be destroyed. Um, when you die, you are gone. When you die, you can't think, you can't lo love, you can't praise, uh, you cannot be found, you are no more. In fact, the Bible tells us that only God is immortal. Timothy 6 verse 15 to 16 says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. So if God is the only immortal being, how can people's souls be immortal? Well, they can't. That would make them God. And when Jesus returns, the righteous will be granted immortality, but it is not an innate condition of the human being or the soul. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 to 55 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. And the timeline is evident here. Our resurrection will happen at the last trumpet call when Jesus returns in glory during the second coming. This is when we put on immortality not before. So human beings, human souls, are not immortal. Well, what about angels? Are angels immortal? No. As the Bible says, only God is immortal. Humans will only put on immortality like they would clothing. It won't be an innate part of us, but rather something bestowed upon us by God. Satan will get no such treatment. Uh, Hebrews 2 verses 14 to 15 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So even Satan will be destroyed. He's not immortal. Ezekiel 28 verses 18 to 19 says, uh, You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, 
and I turned you to ashes upon the earth. In the sight of all who saw you, all you who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror, and you shall be no more forever. So even Satan is not immortal and will be destroyed. So then what about these resurrections in the Bible? Who gets resurrected? Uh, there are two resurrections listed in the Bible. The first is a resurrection of the righteous. Uh, in Revelation 20, verse 6, you can see this. Uh, Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. So when does this happen? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 says, for the Lord himself will descend from the heaven from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. If you go to a funeral, many will teach that the dead are in heaven now, meeting Christ, looking down, watching over us, waiting for us to join them. But this is not true. Uh, there is no one in heaven yet. There has not been a resurrection yet. There has not been a judgment. And all who have died are dead. They know nothing. Uh, Job 14 verses 10 to 12 says, But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lays down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused from his sleep. Uh, Psalm 15 verse 17 says, The dead do not praise God, nor do any who go down into silence. And they will not until Christ comes again. Uh, John 14 verses 1 to 3 says, Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. So if you have loved ones who have passed don't worry about them. They are not watching over you, seeing all your mistakes. They are not waiting for you, wondering when you'll show up. They are sleeping, for lack of a better word, unaware of the passage of time. Our society knew this at one point. We still have this cultural memory of writing rest in peace, you know, RIP, on tombstones. They knew their Bible and that people would rest peacefully awaiting judgment day. Uh, Daniel 12 verse 13 says, But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Uh, John 11 verse 11 says, These things he said, and after he said the, to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. All believers will wake simultane simultaneously and be transformed into immortal, sinless, perfect humans. Uh, John 5 verses 28 to 29 said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, which all those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forward, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The first resurrection will be a singular, massive, global event. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to, 4 to 53, uh, we already read this, but I'm going to read it again because it has a point here as well. It says, Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of, a, of a, an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corrupt, 
for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality. Those who are alive in Christ will be instantly transformed. Those who are dead will be raised to this new transformation. But the second resurrection of the lost receives no such treatment. When Jesus returns, he will sit on the throne of judgment. Uh, Matthew 25 verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and with all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. Uh, we will see all the deceptions unveiled, and God will destroy all those who have been not been granted immortality. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. If you are dead in Christ, you will be raised immortal. If you are alive in Christ, you will put on immortality. If you are dead outside of Christ, then you stay dead. Uh, and if you are alive outside of Christ, then you die. In short, the only ones still standing are the believers in this first resurrection. And again, this is going to be a massive global event. Uh, Revelation 20 verse 5 says, And the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And a few verses before that, Revelation 21 to 3 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he shall deceive deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished but after all these things he must be released for a little while so all these dead outside of christ they stay dead for a thousand years leaving satan without anyone to deceive uh, those who are uh, alive in christ now the resurrected the incorruptible uh, they will be renewed without a sinful nature. And so there is no one left to turn against God because we will see and understand his deception and no one who doesn't will be alive anymore. And then we have John 5 verses 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So this, after a thousand years, this second resurrection will happen, the resurrection of the condemned. Uh, jumping back to Revelation 20, verses 7 to 8. Uh, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is the sands of the sea. So Satan will be released from this prison of having no one to deceive and will deceive all the unrighteous who are now resurrected again. In Revelation 20 verse 9 it says, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So they'll surround God's people and then God will destroy them with fire. You know, remember, he said he'd never use water again in Genesis 9 verse 11. And this is the event that we call hell. God will, in his mercy, destroy them. In Revelation 20, verses 14 to 15, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, 
their portion will be in that lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And that's it. They are dead, destroyed. There is no third resurrection. They do not have immortal souls. They are not tortured for eternity. Uh, Psalm 37 verse 20 says that the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they will vanish away. So they are just gone. Malachi 4 verses 1 to 3 said, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, to the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. You know, that event will be painful, literally being burned alive, but it will not continue for eternity. It can't because this event happens on earth, and earth is the set of the entire arc of the salvation story. Uh, we live on earth, we die on earth, we will be resurrected on earth, Satan will be imprisoned on earth, and the corrupt will rise on earth. Second uh, Peter 3 verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall burn, uh, shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are there, and shall be burned up. So these people are going to surround the camp of believers on earth, and God will destroy them with fire on earth at the same time that he destroys everything except for the believers. God will consume the entire earth, the heavens, and everything contained in both with fire. Second uh, Peter 3 verse 7 says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Deuteronomy 32 verse 22 says, For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth in her increase and shall set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Now, don't be confused here. The word they use for hell literally means the unseen place. This is talking about how deep the fire will burn on earth, not some mystical, pla mythical place that we think of as hell. He's saying he's going to burn so low that no one will have ever seen that low. So it's not just going to take out the buildings and the forests and the rivers. and It's going to take out the oceans all the way down to the bedrock. This is going to create a worldwide lake of fire in, in the same way that he created a worldwide flood. And in the same way, only the believers will be saved. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh, he's going to reform, reform it into a new heaven and a new earth. So hell can no longer exist at this point because the new earth is in the place of the old. And even if it did, there would be no one left to fill in it because all the condemned will have been utterly destroyed. And we all know this verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
the dead do not get everlasting life, not even eternal life in hell. Without Christ, you no longer live. You cease to be. So what about all these verses that say that they'll be tormented forever and ever for eternity? Well, forever in the Bible doesn't mean forever as we think of it in English. It means forever within the context of the situation, the person, or the object. So some examples are uh, Exodus 21, verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall bring him to the door, and or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore through his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So will the servant serve his master even un after death or in heaven? No, of course not. He will serve him as long as he lives. The forever is dependent on the life of the servant. Uh, 1 Kings 9 verse 3 says, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So this is about Solomon's temple, but Solomon's temple no longer stands. So of course, God isn't still focused on it. The forever has ended because the temple no longer exists. Uh, Isaiah 32, verse 14 to 15 says, The forts and the towers will become lairs forever, the joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. This is one of my favorites, because it says it will be forever, but it also tells you when that forever ends, like that it has a limit. So when you get a verse like Daniel 12, verse 2, where it says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. How long will the contempt last? Well, for the person's life, which isn't going to be very long in a lake of fire without immortality. Uh, Jude, Jude 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah are no longer burning. God destroyed them outright. There isn't a burning fire still in the Middle East that everyone points to and says, oh, yeah, that's been going on for millennia. Uh, eternal fire in this case means case means the same thing for the life of the object or of the sentence. Uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah, the unrighteous will be consumed by fire. And I've had some say, well, they're still burning in hell, but that contradicts the Bible. You know, Second Peter 2 verse 6 says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. So even Sodom and Gomorrah, as bad as they were, will not suffer forever. They were wiped out and made extinct. This is an example of what will happen. Destruction and extinction, not eternal torture. Matthew 25 verse 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says, And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So these are talking about eternal punishment or eternal destruction. And what would you do if I gave you a glass cup and asked you to destroy it eternally? Would you start with little cracks or chips and then maybe move on to bigger ones? You know, how long could you keep destroying it before there's nothing left to destroy? Certainly not for eternity. 
No, you you destroy the grass so that it could so that it would be eternally destroyed, you know, because it's so broken and the parts ground down that you could never put it back together again. That would be eternal destruction. The punishment, the destruction is eternal. They don't come back from it. But you can't eternally destroy something by spreading it out over an eternity. That doesn't make any sense. Another verse that comes up often is Mark 9, verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And it's not wrong. You know, this fire is not quenched. It consumes everything and then goes out because there is nothing left to consume. Quenching a fire means putting it out before the fuel is consumed. Uh, when we, when I do blacksmithing uh, and you quench something, it means that your blade is hot and you put it into water or oil to cool it down faster than it would have cooled down on its own accord. You are quenching it. You're putting out the fire quicker than it would have done it on its own. And these are the same thing. You know, when it talks about fire that is not quenched, it will not be quenched. It will burn up everything. I also want to address two common uh, stories in the Bible that people say contradict this, this stance. Uh, the one is people ask, what about the thief on the cross? And the common question when I just discuss this topic is, hey, what do we do with this guy? Uh, Jesus tells him that he'll be in heaven that day. And this sentence in English is owing to a simple grammatical error with a misplaced comma, I think. You know, Greek has no commas, so translators insert them where they think it makes sense when translating them into English and other languages. But it ends up with Jesus lying if you put it in the wrong place, as many Bible versions did. So I think it should be moved to keep it consistent with Jesus' words and actions. Uh, this is in Luke 23, verse 43. It says, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, but I think this should read, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Because it, it cannot be that Jesus said to the thief that he would be with him in heaven that day because Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection. He doesn't go from the cross to heaven. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus, it says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So if Jesus didn't go to heaven, how would the thief be there with him? Um, there are other similar grammatical errors in the Bible. For example, Acts 19, verse 12 is, is a kind of humorous one in which uh, it says, So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out from them. Uh, they forgot a comma in this case. Uh, if you read it the way it should be read, uh, with the comma where it is now, or missing actually, um, according to it, the handkerchiefs were sick, uh, not belonging to the sick. And that's clearly not what they were intending. And then the big one is usually, what about the rich man and Lazarus? And the first thing to realize is that this is a fictional par a parable. It's there to teach a specific point, not to be true in all the facts. Jesus tells us the purpose of this story. Uh, Luke 16 verse 31 says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And if you take the story as a teaching about the na nature of heaven and hell, you can read it for yourself in Luke 16, um, if you don't know it, then you have a significant problem, that hell is within sight and earshot of heaven. 
your paradise will be a front row seat of eternal torment and punishment of the damned, uh, becoming a vision of a sadistic God with sadistic followers. As well, you have other issues, which I mentioned before. Um, there is no second coming in this story. There's no resurrection. There's no opening of the books. There's no a thousand years. There's no new heaven or earth. You just die and go straight to heaven or hell based on, well, I have no idea. I suppose how poor you are, it seems, from the story. Uh, this is not a parable about heaven, hell, salvation, or anything else except what Jesus told us what it was about. And so people hear this and they get confused. You know, they, they want to know well, what about my parents, my si siblings, my children, my spouse, my friends, etc. that died. And I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, unfortunately Christianity has lied to many people about what happens when you die to give false hope. But we're told what our hope should be, how to comfort people about those who have died before us. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 to 18 says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive and remain shall also be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The comfort is that they rest from all their pains and struggles of this life. Not only do they not experience their own, but they don't experience or see ours either. From their perspective, they fast forward to a point where Jesus returns and we are all caught up with him. This is our comfort. This is what we should be preaching at funerals. It should be the hope for believers and a warning to the non-believers. Now, there are some more confusing verses I wanted to bring up because they invariably come up. Uh, one of them is Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The soul here is that psyche, they say. Um, Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul, the psyche, and the body in hell. Gehenna is the word that they use for hell here. And I read this as, don't be afraid of the first death, uh, but instead be afraid of the second death, which is which only non-believers experienced. While in both you die, only in the second death is your chance for resurrection gone. Uh, another one is uh, James 5 verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering shall save his soul, his psyche, from death and cover a multitude of sins. I think many people place the focus uh, of this verse on the wrong person. If you bring back a sinner into the fold of believers, then that sinner will be saved from the second death. He will acknowledge Christ who paid for his sins and so cover the multitude of them. I think a lot of people think that if you bring back a sinner, it will cover cover your own sins, but that would make salvation works-based instead of grace-based. And lastly, the one that really bothers people is if hell isn't eternal torture, why would people follow God? And this is a question I get from many I talk to about this. They see the verses and they can't argue against it, but the reason for following God is because they're afraid of him. They, it's also how they convince others to follow God, to be scared of hell. But the Bible doesn't tell us that we should love God because we fear hell. Instead, it tells us to love him because he first loved us. You know, that's in 1 John 4 verse 19. Uh, God created us knowing that we would sin. 
and then allowing us to understand how damaging and hateful sin is. Uh, you can see my sermon, It's All Worth It. Uh, there's a link in the show notes if you're more curious about that concept. Um, if we get it, if we understand this concept of that sin is bad, uh, if we choose to want a life without sin and we recognize that we need a savior because we can't do it on our own, then we get to go to heaven, which God desired for us in the first place. If we don't, we return to where we came from, nothingness. Yes, there will be some pain. If we don't let Jesus die for our sins, then we'll suffer that lake of fire as we die our second death. But the Bible shows that it will be quick and not unduly extended. Frankly, it's more merciful than what Jesus got from us. So in summary, this is our loving Father, that even in the second death, there is no malice or hate for us, only for the sin in us. For us, there is only mercy. Um, Those who choose to live apart from God will have their desire granted. They will cease to exist as nothing can exist apart from God. Um, The alternative traditional view speaks of God who is sadistic, who creates us knowing we will fall, knowing most will not accept him, and then he chooses to torture them for eternity. If you take the story of the rich man and Lazarus at face value, heaven is front row seating to the sadistic torture of humans for eternity. Uh, This doctrine is not recognizable with a believing or loving God or the rest of the Bible, the way I see it. Uh, So even hell, I think, speaks of the love of God. I I hope this helps you understand the character of God a bit more. If you learned something from this, I'd love it if you would leave a comment on the blog post associated with this. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, If you have further questions, please leave them there as well. If you want to take this study and share it, you may with my blessing. Uh, If sharing our website or a podcast makes you uncomfortable, you don't even have to attribute it to me. You can just copy and paste the whole thing. Please use it, share it, just don't sell it. And that's it for today. Uh, Just a reminder, go fill out our survey if you haven't yet, please. Uh, We're really wanting a whole bunch of data so that we can have a better data set to do analysis with. Gives us better answers to our questions. And other than that, we'll talk to you next time.